Well, good morning. And welcome to GBC, Grace Bible Church of Gainesville. I am thankful this morning to be back in the pulpit. As uh, most of you know, I've, I've been on a four-week break from preaching, and I took the time, I was able to take the time to rest physically and take a time to recharge spiritually. I was able to catch up on some stuff around the house. Uh, as you may be aware, my family has been in transition this summer. Our oldest, Brandon Jr., has moved to his own place just south of Lake City. Uh, our third child, Chloe, just left for college, and, uh, I think a month ago, uh, to go to college in Jacksonville. She started uh, classes and is playing volleyball. We were able to see her play yesterday in her first uh, collegiate game. And uh, evidently, she told us, uh, she's told us that she has a lot of reading to do in uh, adjusting to college. She told me that she had to read the entire Gospel of Matthew in one week. So I'm, if you know me very well, you know that I'm very thankful that she's uh, reading through Scripture in that way. Or Andrew, our second uh, son, is still stationed at Camp Lejeune. And, and actually, uh, he's been on the ready in case they're called to leave for various situations throughout the world. They thought they may have to go to... Haiti, but that has changed, and now he's staying at Camp Lejeune. So we're not yet empty nesters, but we're getting close. Uh, we have Kayla left, and I think she's very lonely because we're not very good company, but she told me that the other night, actually. So, But these changes in our home have caused me to reflect on the effectiveness of our parenting. I have come to realize in time that my family is more important, more critical than any other responsibility that I've ever had, and yes, that includes pastoring this church. As a man, I tend tend toward slaying dragons. I tend toward going out and slaying dragons in the workplace, but I can tell you that my duty as husband and father has far outweighed anything I have accomplished on any job. Some of you are starting in your marriages and are looking forward to children as you look forward. I want you to know that it is, that it is critical to get it right. My, the question, though, is how, how does one get it right? Many believe that there is no owner's manual for raising children. Yet, as Christians, we do have an owner's manual that has much to say about the importance of bringing up your children. The Bible, the Bible tells us how crucial it is to rear your children properly, and it, and it teaches us how to get it right if we follow it instead of following the world, right? As crucial as it is to raise godly children, it is a blind spot for many Christian parents. In the words of J.C. Ryle, he says, As a minister, I cannot help remarking that there's hardly any subject about which people seem so tenacious as they are about their children. I have sometimes been totally astonished at the slowness of sensible Christian parents to admit that their children are in fault or deserve blame. There are not a few people to whom I would rather speak about their own sins than to tell them their children had done anything wrong, end quote. It's a huge blind spot for us as parents. As parents, instead of avoiding the difficult task of raising our children, we should be asking, how are we to raise our children in a way that honors the Lord? Those of you who are looking toward having children, you should be asking, where and do, how do I learn how to bring up my children in the right way? For those who have finished the race of rearing children, we should be asking, how do I encourage my older children to walk faithfully in Christ? 
How do I encourage them to bring their children up, our grandchildren and great-grandchildren, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? Now, I believe Ephesians 6, 4 will give us some of these answers, so let's dive into the text. Let me pray, and then we're going to read Ephesians 6, 1-4, and then we'll dive in. Our gracious Lord, we pray for this time of preaching, pray for my own heart, of distraction, Lord, that you would give me clarity of mind and of purpose, give me clear words to, to speak. Lord, may your Holy Spirit superintend both the preacher and the hearer this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Ephesians 6, if you're not there, turn there. Let's read the first four verses. Ephesians 6, verse, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, so that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. According to a recent news article on Fox News, a 21-year-old Florida street racer who struck and killed a mother and her 20-month-old child has developed a bizarre social media following from around the world who seemingly believe this 24, his 24-year sentence is too harsh. Cameron Heron, now 21, was sentenced in April for racing with a fellow student in Tampa in his brand-new, brand-spanking-new Ford Mustang, a high school graduation present. And he slammed into a 24-year-old woman named Jessica who was pushing her daughter Lilia in a stroller across the road in 2018. During Cameron's sentencing hearing, the judge said the 21-year-old's track record of excessive speed, of excessive speed uh, contributed to his decision to put him behind, the bar, behind bars for 24 years, six years short of the maximum sentence. By July, comments with the hashtag, hashtag #JusticeForCameron inundated social, the social media pages of local news outlets and authorities involved with the case, the Tampa Bay Times reported. Some posts claimed Cameron, who pleaded guilty to vehicular homicide in de de December, was just flat out too cute to go to prison. At the end of that month, there were at least 100,000 tweets about Heron while videos related to him on TikTok view, were viewed 1.7 billion times, according to the newspaper. Twitter has since suspended 900 accounts and removed 90,000 tweets that posted content about Heron for violating its platform manipulation and spam policy. Heron's mother, Cheryl, told the paper that interest in her son is almost like an obsession, an unhealthy obsession. She said she's re received phone calls at home in the middle of the night from people in Middle, middle Eastern countries who support her son. Now, there are a few things that should be readily apparent from this article. First, uh, this, a person this young really ought not have access to a powerful car, especially just out of high school. He had been caught speeding on several occasions, and in the days leading up to his trial, his car's data showed that he had driven 162 miles per hour down I-75 just a few days before. Unfortunately, there seemed to be no consequences for his actions from his parents. 
Second, while it is regrettable to see a young man throw his life away, we need to understand that our actions have legal consequences. We need to understand that our children's actions have legal consequences. If a young man's parents don't hold him accountable, they, can't, they can expect a judge to do so. Third, it is reported that he is from a rather well-to-do Catholic family. They wept for their son at the sentencing, yet their wealth and their religion could not save them from this heartache. Worse yet, his family, especially his father and mother, failed by financing his dangerous street racing hobby, of which they had to know about. No doubt they struggle to understand the 24-year sentence given to such a young man, and they should weep because of it, but they must recognize the role that they played in sending this young man and her, or young woman and her baby to her early their early grave. They should realize that they helped put their son, they helped put their son behind bars for much, much of his life. Brethren, this should be a reminder of why we must battle to bring up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Quite literally, our children can become monsters. A menace to us, to themselves, and to society when they are left to their own devices. When they're left on their own path, they can become an absolute menace. Brothers and sisters, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, bringing bringing your children up in the Lord is one of the most important calls on your life if you have children. Sadly, many of us miss this call in favor of other pursuits. Again, in the words of J.C. Ryle, we live in Days Now, this is the late 19th century. We live in days when there is a mighty zeal for education in every quarter. We are told of new systems and new books for the young and every sort and of every sort and description. And still, for all of this, the vast majority of children are manifestly not trained in the way they should go. For when they grow up to a man's estate, they do not walk with God. End quote. Bishop Ryle is referring to Proverbs 22.6, train up in a, a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. I believe this verse contains a promise and a warning. The promise is that if we train our ch- children diligently, generally they will not re- depart from that teaching, at least for their entire life. The warning, is that, the warning of the, this verse is that when we fail to train our children, generally they will not find the right path in the future. Now, we see this play out in families over and over, do we not? Clearly, training your children in the ways of the Lord is critical to the well-being of of your child and of your family. It is also critical for society. Have you realized that gangs made up of young men whose father, uh, that gangs are made up of young men whose father was absent in one way or the other? Would you believe that it's also crucial for the health of the church? Youth brings energy to the church, but that energy gets expended elsewhere when children are not brought up in the Lord. Now, you see these things work together to strengthen the church. When we, when we are, when we try to, when we work hard to, to, these things work together to, to strengthen the church when we work hard to, tra- to strengthen or our, our, to raise our children in the right way in the Lord. Now, the Apostle Paul understood these things as he append, penned Ephesians. Now, pa- now, Paul wrote Ephesians to encourage the church at Ephesus to greater 
faithfulness. He wanted them, he wanted them to recognize the greatness of their salvation to strengthen and encourage them to carry out the great commission to make disciples of all the nations. Some scholars believe that Ephesians is a general letter written to all the churches. But I would argue that Paul wrote specifically to the church at Ephesus to strengthen them because Paul understood the strategic nature of that church. The church was located on the the west coast of Asia Minor near a large port. The city of Ephesus was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was an important city of commerce. It was strategically located as a connecting point between the churches in the east, such as Jerusalem and Antioch, and the churches in the west, such as Rome and Corinth. The church at Ephesus was also the first of seven churches in Asia Minor. Now, a few uh, observations prove the strategic nature of the church. First, in Acts 19, 9 and 10, we find out that Paul preached there or taught there for a period of of two years. Second, Paul had urged Timothy to remain in Ephesus to pastor the church there. We find that out in 1 Timothy 1, 3. Third, Jesus addressed Ephesus first in Revelations chapter, chapters 2 and 3. He commended them for their doctrinal fidelity, but he warned them that they had lost their first love. Now, let's review real very quickly Ephesians uh, up until this point. Now, we've made our way to Ephesians chapter 6. Well, in Ephesians 1 and 2, Paul reminded the church of their great calling and salvation. He desired for them to understand that God had chosen them before the foundation of the world. That's Ephesians 1, 4. They they had been redeemed, that Jesus had redeemed them and forgiven them through His blood according to to the riches of His grace. That's verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. He he also, according to verse 9, made known to them the mystery of His will. He reminded them that God works all things after the counsel of His will. That's verse 11, chapter 1, verse 11. And He also encouraged them that they were secure in the Holy Spirit who had been given as a pledge to the certainty of their salvation in Christ. That's chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. As such, He wanted them to have a great hope. He wanted them to recognize the surpassing greatness of the power of God toward those who Believe, that's chapter 1, verse 19. Now, this same power that that they had working in them was demonstrated in the raising of Christ from the dead and seating Him in the heavenlies far above all rule and power and dominion. That's chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. They were were witnesses. They were eyewitnesses of the power, power of God. Now, He, that would be Christ, was made head over all things, including the church, who is His representation on earth. That's that's chapter 1, verse 21. They had literally been made representatives of Christ. Now, He also reminded them in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, He reminded them of their former lives lived in the flesh until God had shown mercy and saved them by His grace, having raised them and seated them in the heavenlies in Christ. Now, according to chapter 2, verse 10, he made them, he, he saved them unto good works, which God prepared beforehand so that they would walk in them. See, again, Paul is, is encouraging this church at Ephesus. <clears throat> he, 
He encouraged them that they had been made as one. They had been unified as part of his church so that they would be a demonstration of God's power. In chapter 3, Paul used his own calling to demonstrate how a right understanding of these truths leads to living effective lives of ministry within the church. It goes the same for us, does it not? Now, after Paul laid out the doctrine, the, the greatness of our salvation, and the greatness of the ministry that God has given us, he then goes into chapter, for chapters 4 through 6, which are structured around five walk commands. The final three chapters, that is, are structured around these commands. The first walk command is walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Now that is found in Ephesians 4.1. Now I believe Paul's command to walk worthy is his proposition statement for the final three chapters. It captures the overarching command for how a believer should live in the church and in the world. And in Ephesians 4, 2-3, he describes this worthy walk. We are to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, Paul called the church at Ephesus specifically to walk in a manner worthy of the glorious call, which he had described in chapters 1 and 2, and demonstrated with his own life in chapter 3. In chapter 4, verse 17, he gives the second walk command. Do not walk as the Gentiles walk. He says, we are not to walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. You see, God has saved the Christian, the believer, and he's renewed us. Therefore, we are to, to be continually renewed in the spirit of our minds. Paul says much the same thing in Romans 12, 1 and 2, where he says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As such, Paul was specifically encouraging the church at Ephesus not to imitate unbelieving Gentiles, which they had come from, right? According to uh, 5, 1, and 2, they were to be imitators of God as beloved children. And they were to, the third walk command is, they were to walk in love. And in doing so, they imitated the love of Christ, which was demonstrated on the cross by taking upon himself the wrath of the Father towards sin. Church, we, when we walk in love, when we walk in love, we avoid sexual immorality and any impurity and greed. We give thanks and we avoid sinning with our tongues. We avoid unbecoming associations with those who are, are uh, those idolaters who walk in the darkness. The fourth walk command you find in Ephesians 5.8. In Ephesians 5.8, he says, walk as children of light. Uh, we are not, as, as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus, based on our glorious salvation, we're not to, to participate in the deeds of darkness. That brings us to the fifth walk command, walk in wisdom. That's Ephesians 5.15. He says, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. We are to make, as Christians, make the most of our time because we live in an evil age that is bent on doing the deeds of the darkness. Now, this, this uh, 
in, in, in 519 and 21, he calls the church to be filled with the Spirit. As part of the, the walk of wisdom, he calls the church to be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, even the Father. And then he says this, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So the part of the walk of wisdom is to be subject to one another. Now this brings us to our current passage, which began in Ephesians 5.22. I, I'm, this has all been a review up until now. And in 5.22, Paul begins to describe how we are to be subject to one another. First, he calls the wives to be subject to their husbands as, as unto the Lord. That's 5.22. Just as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their own husbands. In 5.25, he commands the husbands to love their wives just as Christ loved the church. Their love, the love of the, of the husband for the wife is to be sacrificial, modeled by Jesus' sacrificial love for his church. A husband's love is also to be sanctifying, just as Christ sanctifies his church by washing her with the water of the word, of his word. This leads us to the first crucial command to children. The first crucial command to children are they're to obey their parents. Look at your text in 6.1. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, it should be striking to you that Paul addressed the children directly. His expectation was that they were to be present when this letter was read to the congregation. They were expected to listen and obey the instructions given. You've heard, you've heard it said that uh, children are our future, have you not? Yet, in our society, we expect precious little of them. We give them no responsibilities. Some parents even do their schoolwork for them. If they regularly misbehave, go back to this street racer, uh, we, we, we end up just brushing over it. We even have a, a quack doctor pres prescribe Ritalin so they won't disturb our comfortable lives. I wish I could unpack that but I won't. Paul has one simple instruction for our children. Obey your parents and honor your parents. Children, it is your responsibility. If you're here today listening, it is your responsibility to obey your parents because this is the Lord's will for you. This is what is supposed to happen, especially in a Christian parent, a family that is. Our Lord expects you to obey. He will hold you accountable to do so. And, and he will hold your parents accountable to ensure that you do. And why should you obey your parents? Well, notice the text. It says, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. If, if your parents command you to sin, then you obey Christ. But if they ask you to do something that is not sinful, you must obey them, even if you disagree or don't like it. And if you sin, they should discipline you. They show love for you through discipline. And Proverbs 13, 24 says, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Be thankful as children that you don't live under the Mosaic Covenant. Your father at that point could have put you to death for your disobedience. This leads us to the second crucial command that we looked at last time. As children, you are to honor your parents. You are to honor your parents. 
It says, honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. And these verses, Paul repeats the fifth commandment, to honor your parents, which was recorded in Exodus 20, verse 12. This is part of God's Ten Commandments. Therefore, God expects the believer, the believing family, uh, expects the children to obey. The word honor means to value to show high regard, to revere. If we don't honor or value our parents, we cannot expect to flourish in this life. Paul says that obeying this commandment comes with a promise of, of a special blessing of general wellness and long life. The fact that we are to honor our parents doesn't change as we grow older, even though the way we honor them may. In a child's early years, this should motivate them to obey their parents. As they grow older, it should motivate them to value their parents' wisdom. Look at your text in 6.3. It says, so that you may, it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. This is an, an axiom, a truth, a truism. It doesn't mean that every person who honors their parents will actually have a long and good life. What it means, it, 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 it's, that, is, that is probably true, uh, but it also serves as a warning that we can't expect to live long and prosper if we don't honor our parents. Children, see to it that you obey and honor your parents. This leads us to the first crucial command to the fathers. Again, I apologize for such a long review, but we had to get back into the text. Look at Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In this verse, in Ephesians 6, 4, Paul addresses the fathers directly. The question, is whether, uh, the question is whether or not Paul has mothers in view as well, the parents. Well, in 6, 1, he told the children to obey their parents, both father and mother. Here he speaks directly to the fathers. And I believe that he speaks to the fathers because they are to be the main authority figure in the home. As such, in a home where both parents are present, the mother's authority is derived from the father. It's, it's similar that the Father's authority is delegated from Christ Himself, and I think we'll see that clearly in this verse. This can be seen in 1 Corinthians 11.3, where Paul writes, I, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So we see that, that proper hierarchy in the home when, when the Father is the main authority figure under Christ. Now, in a properly functioning home, the father is the authority figure, but he has to, as such, support his wife in the discipline and instruction of the children. He is ultimately responsible <coughs> for raising his children. But there is a grave danger which must be avoided. Look back at your text. He must not provoke his children to anger. He must not provoke his children to anger. As fathers... We are not to make it our practice to stir up our children to anger. When we studied this verse seven weeks ago, I gave ten ways to provoke your child to anger. I suggest you go back and study those, but for now, let me give you four main ways, very quickly. Having unreasonable expectations is one. The second one is being unreasonably harsh. The third is failing to discipline them. And fourth is ignoring them. I think of that third one, failing to discipline uh, Cameron Heron, who's in jail now for street racing. Don't you think he wished his mom and dad would have held him accountable? You think he might be a little angry about that? 
If he's not, he should be. Men, even in our modern culture where men take a back seat to their wives, we can still be overly harsh toward our children. Generally, in our culture, we have to beg the men to actually engage with their children. Yet in Paul's culture, men had much more authority, even up to the point of being able to kill their children for disobedience. In the words of Frank Tillman, a commentator on Ephesians, he says the powerful father was part of Roman, Greek, and Jewish culture. Here, Paul reigns in this power, urging fathers not to abuse their authority by treating their children in harsh, unfair ways that create resentment and bitterness, end quote. As I grew up in Arkansas, the men generally let their wives run the household. They and they generally ignored the children as they did their jobs and they went hunting and fishing and all those things. They didn't pay too much attention to the, to the children. But there were times when the pattern was they would blow up at their wives and children in anger. I'll never forget a friend's story of getting beaten with a water hose for doing something that angered his drunken father. That's obviously worst case scenario. But men, we must lead our families. We must not ignore them, or we, and we must not blow up the, at them in anger. Now, Paul has the answer to these concerns. That leads us to the second crucial command that we have, and this is our only main point for today. As fathers, you are to properly rear, your, rear or raise your children. As fathers, you are to properly rear or raise your children. Look at your text in 6.4. He says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, Paul starts this phrase, as I showed you and how I read it, with the conjunction but. This is a strong adversative, which denotes a strong contrast in how the father should respond to his children. With this conjunction, it's very important to understand this, Paul is strongly denouncing treating your children in ways that provoke them to anger. He adamantly desires for the fathers to properly raise their children, and they're to do so by focusing on righteous discipline and instruction. Now, the, the verb translated bring them up has the idea of nourish. Paul used the same word in Ephesians 5, 20, 29. He says, for no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Therefore, therefore, as fathers, we are to nurture our children. Now, you might be thinking, I'm sure you're thinking, that generally we think of our wives as being the ones who nurture the children, correct? But Paul is very clear here that it's the fathers who are to nurture the children. We, we are to, to nurture them in a way that shows our love for them. He applies this term again to fathers. and In this context, he uses it, uses it to describe the loving father, or the love that the father, that is, the loving care that the father is to give to his child. Now, you might be asking, if you're here today, I'm sure you're asking, and I would be asking the same thing, how am I to nurture my children? I think of my wife that way, but how am I to do that? Well, look back at your text. Look back at your text. He writes, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The word translated discipline in the NAS and the ESV has the idea of training or education. It can also refer to punishment or correction. 
The same word is used in 2 Timothy 3.16. It says all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So this word conveys the idea of providing guidance or training. And as such, there is a positive and a negative aspect to this word. According again to Frank Thielman, he says this term had a a broad range of meaning from physical and mental training and the values of a particular culture to disciplinary punishment. In Christian literature, even when the element of disciplinary punishment is in view or emphasized, the educational value of the punishment is uh, is also in view. Now, Paul's use of this term helps us understand that we as fathers must be fully engaged in the process of training our children. We as fathers should be the main source of guidance and biblical values. We should also be fully engaged in their academic studies as well. Now, I'm I'm amazed when fathers give the responsibility of educating their children to the state without any involvement. But really, as a father, you shouldn't just give it completely to your wife without involvement as well. You should be guiding that process. Do you realize that your child's early education sets their trajectory? John Locke says this, this is interesting, that of all men we meet with, nine parts out of ten are what they are, good or bad, useful or not, according to their education. End quote. Now I would also argue that we, as fathers, are are responsible for guiding them into the, the social norms. We should be their main source of the main source of accountability to them, when especially when they rebel against our teaching. Now we must remember that the Lord trains us through His through, the Lord trains us through His Word. He also disciplines us when we disobey. The writer of Hebrews states this in Hebrews twelve five and six. He says, "My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him." For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. Now let me say just a few quick words about discipline. Now I fully understand that this is a controversial topic in our culture, yet I also believe that we must discipline, we must discipline our children. Now there are different ways to carry out discipline. Now listen to me carefully. You need to tailor your approach to the child. You need to take their personality into account. Now, you may choose restrictions, especially as the child grows older. Some children respond well to being restricted from certain privileges. You may also choose to add chores. Again, some kids do well if you give them extra work as a, part of their, as a, as a result of their disobedience. Some parents choose timeouts, which are similar to restrictions. These are usually more immediate in nature. But quite frankly, quite frankly, while I believe every Christian parent should utilize these approaches, I have rarely seen them work well by themselves. Now, I would argue that the Bible teaches us to spank our children on the bottom in a God-honoring way. Now, a rightly administered spanking will have a great positive effect on the heart of the child. Believe me, it will. Just listen to these Proverbs. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, 
The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. That's Proverbs 22.15. Proverbs 23.13 says, Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. Proverbs 19.18 Discipline your son while there is hope, and do not desire his death. Apply that to the street racing story. Church, I'm not advocating that you abuse your child. That would be absolutely ungodly. But the Lord is clear that you as a father and a mother should, must not hold back on discipline. The discipline must address the heart and the mind first. But the Lord made our rearians with lots of padding although I don't have as much anymore. Thankfully, I don't get spanked. But he, do, he did so so that our words of instruction can, can be reinforced with the rod of discipline. But if you do it, when you do it, you need to ensure that reconciliation happens. You can't just spank and leave that separation. There has to be reconciliation. The, the purpose of discipline, get this, the purpose of discipline is to soften their hearts to receive your instruction. We must be willing to do the difficult work of disciplining our children so that there will be peace in the home and so that they will not grow up to be monsters. Charles Spurgeon says if... We never have headaches while through rebuking our children. We shall have plenty of heartaches when they grow up. End quote. You may be struggling with this, but I can tell you that you will struggle much more if you don't do it. Fathers, you are charged to nurture your children by guiding them and training them in righteousness. This includes the necessary discipline they require. The second term translated instruction has been also translated admonition. The, idea has, the, the word has the idea of exerting influence on the mind. This word can mean warning, as, as in God warned the wilderness generation about their conduct when he sent serpents among them in response to their complaints. If you remember that story, Jesus picks up on that in John 3. It, it denotes... It denotes a, the word of ad, admonition that is designed to correct while not provoking or embittering. The idea of warning comes through in Titus 3.10 with the same word. It says, reject the factious man at the, after a first and second warning. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 10.11, we see the same idea of warning or admonition. Now these things happen to them as an example. They were written for our instruction uh, to warn us upon whom the end of the ages have come. Taken together, these words encompass the process of training and warning our children. As, as fathers, we're called to do this in a firm, in a firm yet winsome way. You should strive to be patient and loving toward your kids without failing to discipline where necessary. It's a hard balance. A hard balance. I can't say that I've gotten it right. I can tell you what the, the Word says, but I, I've struggled with it. And I'm sure if you're honest with yourself, if as fathers you've struggled with it as well. Look back at your text. Paul says that we are to, 
to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In other words, our, our training must be centered on the person of Christ. We must recognize that we are the Lord's agents. Therefore, as a father, you are to raise your children according to Christ's mandates. You must recognize that the Lord will hold you accountable. He'll hold you accountable to both rear your children properly and to not provoke them to anger. Ultimately, ultimately, the goal of our instruction should be that our children come to know the Lord Jesus in saving faith. That they walk with the Lord. Charles Spurgeon says, what a blessing to have our children enlisted in, the, in Christ's army. Why do you think Paul makes a contrast between provoking your children and bringing uh, your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? There's such a huge contrast. Huge contrast. Now, as we conclude, Bishop J.C. Ryle wrote a booklet called Duties, The Duties of Parents. In it, he gave some hints for training your children, and I thought it would be profitable to read them to you. First, train them in the way they should go and not in the way that they desire. Second, train up your child with all tenderness, affection, and patience. Third, train your children with an abiding persuasion on your mind that much depends upon you. Fourth, train with this thought continually before your eyes, that the soul of your child is the first thing to be considered. Fifth, train your child to a knowledge of the Bible. Sixth, train them to a habit of prayer. Seventh, train them to habits of diligence and regularity about public means of grace. Eighth, train them to a habit of faith. Ninth, train them to a habit of always speaking the truth. Tenth, train them with a constant fear of overindulgence. Boy, that's an important one, isn't it, in our society? Eleventh, train them remembering continually how God trains His children. Twelve, train them remembering continually the influence of your own example. Do as I say, not as I do. Right? No, we don't do that, right? Thirteen, train them remembering continually the power of sin. Do I see that one in my house? Uh, Over my own life, but also with my children. Fourteen, train them remembering continually the promises of Scripture. Fifteen, and lastly, train them with continual prayer for a blessing on all you do. Is that not the most important one? Because outside of the blessing of God, it's all in vain. It's all vanity. Brethren, my kids will tell you. They'll be the first to tell you to stand up and say, I failed to do these consistently. But there is grace there is grace. If you're a Christian parent here today, take heed yet. Take heed. I mean, these are, this is important stuff. Lest your kids be, face what 
Cameron Heron basis or worse. Take heed, yet be encouraged. You may be failing, but the Lord can use your feeble efforts for good. Start today, though. Start today. If you have breath, it is, not, it is never too late to bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You may say, as I do for the most part, they're out of my house. Well, that may be true. But you still have the means to influence them, do you not? Take the time to influence your kids with your faith. Confess your sin to the Lord and ask forgiveness from your kids and do better. Excel still more. Also, have you considered the grandkids? If you're not a parent, know that you can still have great influence on the children around you. If nothing else, if nothing else, if nothing else works, Make it your aim to pray for the children of this church and the children that you know, the children of your family. Pray for them by name. Pray for them always. Now, if you're here today and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus, surely you see the result of a godless society where children are left to their own devices. Surely you see that. You have seen the result of gang-infested cities, have you not? But there's a much greater issue at stake, your salvation. Friend, you may serve your community in a variety of ways. You may serve in a way that helps clean up the gangs. You may do great things in that way. You may feed the poor. You may give shelter to the homeless. You may give vast amounts of your money and time to care for the orphans. But if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will not. I repeat, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And you will suffer His wrath for eternity. In the words of Jesus Himself, Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I beg you, if you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, I beg you to turn to Him. I pray that you will trust His finished work on the cross. He shed His blood to redeem those who are His. He, he shed His blood. If only you would believe. Cry out to Him before it's too late. If the Lord has laid any of these things on your heart today that I've preached about, whether it be your children, whether it be your salvation, Whatever it is that the Lord has laid on your heart, come see me or Phil or Bay or see a, a, a mature Christian. Now I'm going to pray and then we're going to enter a time of communion this morning. Let me pray and then we'll transition. Our gracious Lord, Lord, you know my heart. As I stand here before you, as three of my four children are here even this morning, listening, Lord, I pray, I thank you for the grace that you give. Lord, if there be anybody here today they don't know you as their Savior, their Lord. 
pray they would turn to you. Lord, I pray you would bless this time of observing the Lord's table. Lord, I pray, I think of this church, I think of the church at Ephesus. I think of Paul and how strategic that church was in his mind. Lord, I pray that you would use this church as a, as a church that would reach the lost here in Gainesville. Reach the lost of those who come to this university town and live their years here. Father, I pray that we would be a church that has strong families that are raising, that are raising their children in the right way before you to be a witness to those who don't know you. And may the, the, the lives that we live match the words that we preach before you. In Christ's name, amen.